as Christ draws near to Jerusalem, we've been reminded again and again in Mark's gospel that his kingdom is unlike any kingdom on earth. His kingdom, the kingdom of God, flips the nations of this world on their head. This is the kingdom of God spoken of by the prophet Daniel as he interprets the dream of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. The kingdom of God that will be set up that shall never be destroyed. That will break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and shall stand forever. Kingdom greater than the greatest empires this world has known. And yet, this kingdom that shall crush the nations is characterized by our Lord Himself, not by self-advancement. A kingdom that is not about wealth, that is not for the great and powerful, but is a kingdom characterized by self-denial, humility, and self-sacrifice. And yet, as the disciples have been learning from their Lord about this kingdom, they've seen His great glory on the mountain revealed. But they have not learned from Christ's lessons. They needed, we saw last week, to be taught again that their entrance into the kingdom of God was a matter of grace. Not a matter of rank and status. They needed to learn that the kingdom of God is not just for the grown-ups. The people that are put together. The people that we in this world would call great. But in fact, the kingdom of God is only, is only for those like children. Those who have no status. Nothing great and important to offer but themselves. Those who come in humility with empty hands to receive the gift of God, an inheritance, a part in His kingdom. Kingdom that shall never end. Today, building off of where we left, we have a man come to Jesus. And we're going to see, will he come as a child? Or will he come on the basis of his works and on his status? Will this man be willing to leave it all to trust in the King of Kings and to commit his life to him? Or will he go away 
sad. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10 and we'll work through Mark chapter 10 verses 17 to 31. In verse 17 of Mark chapter 10, we read that Jesus was setting out on a journey. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? As Jesus prepares to leave as he comes one step closer to a shameful death on a cross, a man runs up and he kneels at his feet and he asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a seeker. This is a man who throws aside his dignity to run and kneel at Jesus' feet. These acts outwardly show some measure of humility that this man would would come running and want to know surely this is a man who will follow Christ we'll see how he responds to Jesus but what does Jesus say to this man who comes He has some good things to say. He asks a question. Jesus does not pat him on the back for coming and seeking him out. He cuts to the heart of this man's true motivations. He cuts to the heart of this man's true motivations. He asks him some questions. Verse 18, Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus first asked the man, Why do you call me good? Why? Now Jesus is indeed the only truly good and trustworthy teacher. The Gospels demonstrate over and over that Jesus is indeed above reproach. The title of good, the attribute of goodness, is indeed Christ. He has committed no sin that any man could charge him of in his entire life. When he was tried, they had to trump up charges, bring in false witnesses, and they couldn't even get their witnesses to agree. 
He was and is the only one who knew no sin. As Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He is good. But what Jesus is getting at here is exposing and correcting this man's view of goodness. What does he mean by good? Why is he calling Jesus a good teacher? Is he just one good teacher among many to this man? Here was a man who already thought he was good. When Jesus brings up the Ten Commandments, we read in verse 19, or verse 20 rather, I have kept all of these, he says. Jesus doesn't even ask him, have you kept them? But he's like, oh yeah, I kept them. Jesus must be giving me a pass. No, he is not. Here is a man who does not come to Jesus thinking, I'm a sinner. I need to be rescued. But a man who comes thinking that he's good already. He wants to be reassured ultimately of his self-righteousness. That he himself is okay. He doesn't need to do another thing. He feels like he's okay and he wants that reassurance. David Garland puts it this way. He hopes that Jesus can relieve any lingering doubts about his chances and inform him if there's anything in the fine print that he should worry about. You know, maybe he's like in the back of his mind, he's like, maybe I'm missing something, some little thing that I can do. He says, what must I do? Some little thing that I can do to, to make myself acceptable to God. That's the way that this man approaches Jesus, the, the one he calls a good teacher. Do you approach Christ in that way? To see if you've checked all his boxes. To, uh, just hoping you've made the cut. Jesus responds to this man by doing two things. First, by defining good. And second, by reminding him of God's law. Jesus teaches what the scriptures teach, that only God, is good. No one is good but God alone. Verse 18. He says it as it is. He says it quite plainly. Here is the final word. On human goodness. We are not. Only God is good. And so here is this man. A young man, we learn from the other gospel accounts. A rich man, we will learn. 
a man who was a ruler of the peoples, who like all people is drowning, as it were, in his sin. And he is not good enough to remain afloat. He cannot escape death. For no one, no man, no woman, no child is good save God alone. And yet this, this man has some inkling, a prick in his conscience that he is drowning. He wants some, just a little bit of reassurance. He comes to Jesus hoping that Jesus will say, you're headed for a pleasant destination, man. You're doing good. That's what this man wants. It's okay. You're not really drowning. But Jesus is not interested in dishing out assurance to drowning people. This man must be told that he's about to die. No, you're not ready to inherit eternal life. You're not good enough, man. Why? Why tell people that they're not good? That they need a Savior, that they need Jesus Christ. So that they would, by the work of God's Spirit, throw everything else aside to hold on to the one who can save them. That's what this man needs. To throw everything else aside. To trust in Christ and follow Him. Some people suggest that it's foolish to tell a drowning man that he's drowning. Tell a sinner that they're a sinner. They say he or she already knows it. He's drowning in sin and despair. and Just give people the good news and get on with it and help them out. But I'm afraid that's not what Jesus our Lord does here, is it? Why? Because he knows that this man is blind to the seriousness of his condition. Man doesn't recognize what... Jesus will go on to say he lacks. The Spirit of God says plainly in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, to keep them from seeing Jesus, who is the glory of God and who is the only one who can save them. From their sin. Unless God opens our eyes. By the preaching. Of the law and of the gospel. To see our sin. And to see Christ. It's as though people think. They're playing in the shallows. When they've already. Jumped into the deep end. They're already on the path. To destruction. 
So how does Jesus help this man? How does he answer him? First, he tells us the only one who is good, God. Secondly, he brings up the Ten Commandments, which this man would have known by heart. He knew them well. Jesus reviews these commandments. He he specifically highlights the ones that are about how we relate to one another. How do you relate to your neighbor? He mentions murder, adultery, stealing, bearing false witness, defrauding and honoring your father and mother. And he puts them in that order. It's it's not the order of the Ten Commandments. He's highlighting different ones. The command, do not defraud, is given in place of the last commandment. Do not covet. I think this was to emphasize to this man the importance of something that related very specifically to his life. The need as a man of possessions to have honest business dealings. To not gain what he had by dishonest means. And we don't know his life, whether this touched a chord or not. But Jesus applies the law into this man's situation. His life. His situation. Now this man needs the law. He needs it as a mirror to reveal himself. To reveal himself as a man who is not good. A man who needs the Lord to save him. But as he looks at the mirror of God's law that Jesus holds up to his life, he still thinks that he keeps the law. Verse 20, and he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Notice what one thing that, that he does is he takes the good off. Apparently he had enough sense to know Jesus was like upset about the way he used the word good. But the problem is that this young man still thinks that he's good. He can check all these boxes in his mind. Now Jesus takes this man's word at face value. He doesn't argue with him and say, no, 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 you didn't honor your parents. No, 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 you didn't do this. You defrauded your neighbor or whatever. He does take him at his word. Externally, at least, this man does look pretty good. He feels that he's given, he can be given a pass on these things at any rate. But what does Jesus do? He looks at his heart. Verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. That's the motive of Christ. His concern for this young man that he would speak to him so clearly about the thing that he lacked. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and 
Come follow me. Jesus, in his love, says there is one thing you lack. He looks into his heart and he sees that this man is holding on to his wealth. He's holding on to his own own goodness. So he gives a man a task to show to show a change of heart. To give away his stuff. And he promises eternal treasure as a reward. Something far better. The man needed to be willing to lay everything else aside. To have no master but Christ. Anything less is not godliness. Anything less is not love for God, which is the first and greatest commandment. Is there one thing that you hold on to in your heart? Jesus, in His love, says to you and I that we must give up anything that would hold us back from following Him completely. There is nothing in this world that is worth holding on to More than Christ. Sadly, this man does not entrust himself to Christ. Disheartened by the saying, verse 22, he went away sorrowful. He went away sad. For he had great possessions. You know, this is only now that we learn that this man had a lot of possessions. He had many things, but he was unwilling to lay them aside. In his heart, he could not let go. His wealth was more valuable to him than all the treasures of heaven. For he had another master. He had another love. And it was not God. He would not have said so, but he did not love the Lord from his heart. He loved the world, the things in this world, far more. How do we know that he didn't love the Lord? Because he wasn't willing to obey his Lord. He wasn't willing to give up the things of this world that the Lord asked him to give up for his sake. He was still heading on the path towards destruction, carrying his possessions with him, thinking that with his good deeds, 
his adherence to the law, he could come with all his great possessions and enter the kingdom of God. Jesus then speaks to his disciples. He speaks to those who have left their homes, who've left their jobs, who've left their wives, and who've come to follow him. And this is what he says in verse 23 to 27. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, he addresses them as children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Jesus wants to make it clear to those that follow him that possessions don't make it easier. There's something in us that wants more. We, we like things. We like nice things. That's fine. But Jesus wants us to understand that having those things does, is not going to make it easier to trust Him, to do whatever He calls us to do. And I think we're very quick to excuse our love for things. And perhaps compared to, to others that have a more extravagant outward show of, of things. And not be quick to see the danger as Jesus puts it so plainly. The danger is you may lose your soul. Because you are not willing to give up the stuff that you have. If you cling to the stuff of this world you're going to go down with it. Now the disciples are influenced by a society that not everyone, some rabbis spoke very vehemently against wealth, but most of the society saw wealth as a sign of God's favor. And so they were quite shocked. If this guy who's got all his life together, who comes with it, he could bring great coffers to their little, little funds, whatever they had to travel around with, they were, they were shocked, okay? This is not the way that the kingdom of the world operates. Somebody comes with money. Oh, yeah, we want you, buddy. Here, we'll give you some things, some incentive, right? That's not how Jesus operated here at all. 
And so the disciples want to know how anyone can be saved. What hope is there for us? They're beginning to see how terrifying the pervasiveness of sin is. I pray earnestly that none of us would leave today without a sense of our sin. That we would not be deceived into thinking that we're good enough. You're not. I'm not. Don't be a fool who rejects the Lord's call. The Lord cried out, with man it is impossible. Again, He spoke plainly, we in our own willpower will find it impossible to give up what we love in this world. Whether that is our possessions, whether that's our pleasures, those things that we so enjoy, that we indulge in. Maybe it's the praise of people. You live in, you live in fear that people won't like you. Be many things that we love. And our pride blinds us from facing the reality of our ungoodness, our sin. And without the grace of God, we are all like the man who went away sad, unwilling in our heart of hearts to give up our selfish pursuits. Maybe we disguise them. Maybe cloak them in some respectable garb, you know. But not give them up. Some hearing this might scoff at the thought that they are far from God. You might scoff at that thought. Me? Really? You think yourself pretty good, but you ignore the Lord's plain teaching. Yet praise God, Jesus is not finished. It is possible to say that I am at peace with God. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore we have peace with God, having been justified. Having been declared righteous on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. Because our King gave up His life. So that we could enter into his kingdom. And so what Jesus says here to his disciples. 
in verse 27 is nothing is impossible with God. You see, God and God alone can save the most self-righteous hypocrite and the most perverted sinner. While we're enraptured with all kinds of fleeting happiness, blind to the path of destruction that we're on, God is able to open our hearts and minds to see His glory and to so love Him that we give up all other loves for His sake. My friend, when you know the love of God, you can give up anything because He's worth it. When God, by His Spirit, reveals to us the depth of our sin and the mercy of Christ, He enables us. He is able to to rescue us so that we would run to Jesus, so that we would receive His gift of life and hold nothing back. He is able to give you life. Now, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, wants some reassurance himself. He has left a home and family. And so he asks in verse 28, See, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive 100-fold now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Jesus promises that anyone who leaves earthly goods and our families all these things for his sake will be taken care of both now and forever it's an amazing promise God will take care of you but he warns that many who are first will be last And the last first. And so again, he warns the disciples and he will warn them yet again at another time. That the one who's seeking to be first, to be greatest, to have the most now, has missed the point in his kingdom. May find yourself last if what you seek is the things of this world. And God in His grace may extend mercy to you and rescue you, but all that you built your life upon, all that you live for will be taken away and it will be of no value in eternity. We need this warning as well as this reassurance. When Jesus says you will receive a hundredfold, 
He is not giving a mathematical formula here. If you give up this much, you'll get this much kind of thing. He's reassuring his followers that he will take care of them. And letting them know that he will take care of the needs that they have for a family, for a house, if that's the need that you have, or for, for food to eat. But we need to remember that possessions are not the measurement of God's blessing. God's provision for us in this life, he says in this time, he'll provide for you. He'll give you a house if you need it. He'll give you family, a brother and a mother if that's what you need. But he's promised these things with persecutions. Meaning that it may not look good for you in the short term. And if God should even choose to take your very life. He still is good. So we need to be careful about assigning to people because they've got their life looks better. They must be greater in the kingdom of God. That's not what Jesus says. But he does want you to know that he'll take care of you. That is an important reassurance because we as disciples of Christ are called to follow him. And that means that we might lose everything for standing against the tide of a culture that applauds the murder of babies and that calls gender a social construct. We might soon be called bigots and haters for proclaiming that no one is good but God and that He's the only one who can save people from their sins. People that are, are speaking boldly and loudly today already are experiencing persecution, slander. Called names. Lawsuits against them for standing on what the Lord Jesus Christ says. But what we need to know is that God will take care of us so we can leave this world in the hands of God. We can leave it to His judgment. We pray, can pray, and we should pray that He will redeem it, that He will use us to rescue many and to perhaps bring about change in our society as we're salt and as we're light. But the results are in the hands of God. And we must be prepared to endure to the end and to, to lose perhaps everything, knowing that God will take care of us. In Noah's day, the people who held on to the world drowned with it. And on the last day, the judgment will be no less severe. 
I don't know what judgment God has for us in this day. Our nation and its wickedness. But out of deep love for you, out of concern for your souls and for the souls of those in our community, those in our lives, I must ask you, what keeps you from total commitment to Christ? Is there something that you hold back from Him? That you don't want to give up to Him? There's no holding back in the kingdom of God. Jesus calls you to humbly trust that He is enough. He is enough. He's the only one who can reconcile you to God. He's the only one who can keep your life day after day. Into eternity. Your money. And your family. And your career. And your comfort. Nothing is worth holding on to. How well people like you. It's not worth holding on to. If it keeps you from following him. We need to lay it down. At the feet of the king. You're not going to be saved. By your works. Rejoice in that. You're never going to be good enough. You'll only be justified. By the grace of God. And remember. What we began the service with. His love endures forever. He is a faithful God. He's the only one who can keep your life. He is our only hope.